but I want you to open your Bibles tonight to Psalms 37. If you can recall, three weeks ago when I spoke on a Wednesday night, I used Psalms 37. And the title of the message was, Two Dogs That Bite. Remember that? You remember the title. You may not remember the content much, so I'm going to refresh you a little bit. But I'm going to continue with the same psalm and somewhat of the same theme. And tonight I'm going to title this, The Christian's Muzzle for Biting Dogs. In the natural world, there are signs in the yard that says, Beware of the dog, because if you're not, you could get bitten by a dog. If you're not paying attention or if you don't maintain or handle yourself or avoid or protect yourself, there are dogs that will bite you. I mean, they surely will. In a spiritual sense, you know, the devil has his dogs. They're not things that draw blood like a dog would bite you, but they are spiritual entities that can damage you nonetheless. And those two things in Psalms 37.1 are fretting and envy. And they're two, as I said three weeks ago, they're very natural and normal things. We have probably all done it because sometimes we're trying to follow the Lord, trying to uh, do things his way and deny ourselves access to the world's way and keep our hearts right. And as we are striving and pressing into this Christian life, we tend to notice a lot of people that don't have any interest in the Lord or Christians who really neglect or ignore what is taught in order to do things the way everybody else does things. They're really getting along good. They do everything wrong, but they get everything right. They deny the Lord that bought them about Many things in their life, yet the money comes in, the children get the education, they got the new car, the new home, they have money and they do this, and we notice that. And the devil sort of picks at you and says, you know, you could be like that, you could have that if you just ease up a little bit. That church is ruining you. That kind of teaching is really going to set you back many years, going to ruin your family, your kids are going to come up short. They're going to be angry because they were denied because you wouldn't do what the world does. Devil has a lot of ways of needling us to get us to, well, make excuses for why we don't do what we've been taught. Or why we turn away from what we have read or seen for ourselves and set it aside and somehow we don't think that's necessary all the time, especially right now, to live that way. Because we want what the world has. We want their luxuries and their freedoms and their toys. And the more we walk with the Lord, the more we see there are right ways to live and there are wrong ways to live. Now, you know that. There is a way that seems right. You know because the Bible says, well, you shouldn't do that. You know it's not the right way. There are Christians who say, you know, if it's not right, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. And so you're willing to live differently than other people do. Even Christians criticize you for living that way. But if you're not careful, you'll find yourself in one of those struggling days and start complaining. You know, we call that in verse 1, fretting. The word means to be vexed, irritated, or despondent. Just sort of upset about things. You're, you're vexed. So you begin to fret. We call it complaining, mumbling, or groaning. That's what we would call that. And we do that because as we look at the workers of iniquity, we become envious of them. Now, either one of these two things, our grumbling and complaining and our envy of people who get things and have things, and you know they're not right with God. These things can draw you away. You can begin to assume, like in this age we're in now, this is an age of assumption. Well, you know, they're, they're not exactly bad people, and even though they don't go to church, I'm, God's blessed them anyway because, look, they're blessed, and if you're blessed, it has to be God. So, I mean, it couldn't be all that bad. 
They're very, very pragmatic. You know, I, if it works, why? what's wrong with it? The next thing you know, these dogs begin to bite you, and you begin to draw you away, and you begin to employ their methods and their way of living and their way of getting things, and, and why not? People don't realize because they get away from that verse that says, you know, your sin will find you out. It's just a day you don't want it to be found out. The day you don't want to have to be in a struggle, it comes. Because there is a way that seems right, but boy, the end of that way is nothing but trouble. We went on and looked at this psalm the last time and saw how the wicked, at the end of a wicked man's life in Psalm 73, as well as in Psalm 37, the end of a man's life, the wicked, and their lifestyle is never good. They don't die well. They come to the end of their life, Hollywood stars die. They got money, fame, fortune. They got about everything that people would like to have, and they hang themselves because they can't cope. And that's the way the devil pays you back. He lures you to go this way, and then he pays you in counterfeit money. Makes a fool out of people. Folks, the only hope we have of surviving the methods and the wiles and the ways of the devil is by taking heed to this word. The day in your life you're no longer interested in just studying and getting here in the word all the time, but you start relaxing yourself is the day the devil comes in and looks for an opening because he goes about like a roaring lion. Who's he looking for? He's looking for whom he can devour. He obviously can't devour everybody, but there are people that he can devour, and he's looking for them. Just his wiles, his methods, and all those things that he does. But don't envy the wicked. Don't envy the rich and the famous. All they have is a momentary time in life with more than you have. They only have a little time to live, like a vapor of smoke. And then their existence, they're going to live in another world, but they're going to live in a dark world. Only a little while they get all this fame and fortune and glory and have a billion dollars in the bank and people fear them and people honor them and pray, whoa, look at this, look at that. But their time is very short. And when it comes to an end, the Bible says there's no more remembrance of them. Nobody remembers them. People dreaded them. Probably people said they liked them because they wanted in on their money or something. But the fact of it is, as long as you live in this world, and, and we do, you're going to have to cope with it. All of us will have to cope with this world. Now, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 19, it says, The whole world lieth in wickedness. Really, I think the text says the whole world lieth in the wicked one or is persuaded and influenced by the wicked one. Think of it for a moment. The whole world, there are a few exceptions. God's always had his remnant, the exception. But the whole world, the systems of this world, everything the world admires because that's all they'll ever know. Everything lies in wickedness because the ruler over that, remember Jesus spoke about the, the prince of the power of the air, or the, the, the God of this world in John chapter 12. He's the one that is in control. And he's the one that has corrupted all the facets of society. He's the one that's behind all the death and the stealing and the lying and the terrorists in the world and all the hateful, savage things that are done to man. He's behind all of it. He's the corporate. He's the one that inspires it. He's the one that does it. Ephesians 2 says he is the prince of the power of the air, the power or the, or the authority that's over cities and over people's lives and over families. The spirit that rules in wicked people is the devil. And we were all once like that. Weren't we like that once? We were once in darkness. Hopefully we can say, those of us that are older especially, we know what's out there. We know what it's like. And the fact is, as we read this psalm a little bit tonight, we'll find that the more we have been drawn into God, the more that has become a reality, the less strength 
the world has. The more easily you can walk away from temptations that used to control you because now you can see through it. You stuck around long enough, you kept coming long enough, you kept listening long enough that finally a sliver of light came in, got your attention, and the devil got exposed. And now you see who's behind all that stuff. You could tell a church crowd until they're old gray-headed people that the whole world lies in wickedness and it would never mean a hill of beans to them. But when they begin to see the wickedness, when the wickedness becomes apparent and you are able with your senses to understand it and recognize this is who has been controlling my life for years. You'll make an about face and you'll turn away. You'll begin to fight the good fight of faith. Remember, we wrestle. Not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and these powers, these rulers of the world's darkness. That's who we're fighting tonight. That's who makes us unhappy and sad and tore up and complaining and griping. He's behind the whole thing. And again, what I'm saying isn't going to keep people from griping and complaining. They will anyway, except for those who, who begin to see it. God shows it to you. Your eyes get open, and you think, you know what? I have been a subject of the devil for a long time. But as long as you're in this world, you got that to deal with. I mean, there are dogs that bite in the kingdom of darkness everywhere. And again, as long as you're here, this is what you've got to overcome. This is the kind of stuff you have to flee from. God requires us to make a distinction between what is right and wrong. He will teach us what is right and wrong. That doesn't mean you'll do right, but you have to make that decision. I will no longer do this or I will no longer do that because it's wrong. And people who don't care that much about that, they think you're crazy. But I know at the end of my life, when it ends and it's over, it's not people that I have to face. It's God Almighty. You know that, don't you? And it would sure be a good time to stand before him with favor and hear him say, well done. Thou imperfect, troublesome, difficult, yet saved soul. I like the psalmist said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper to the house of God than to rule this world. So back to Psalms 37, what are these muzzles that we're going to put on the devil to keep him from ruling us? Well, the first one is verse 3. This verse is as common as the shoes on your feet. We quote it all the time. You can quote it by heart. And yet it's one of those things that escape reality in people's lives. What does he say? Trust in the Lord and do good. So shall you dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. You don't have to envy others that have everything. You don't have to wish this or wish that. You don't have to lack and long for all that. Look, you trust in the Lord and do good, and you'll be fed. Your Heavenly Father didn't write this aimlessly. These are not words of nothingness. I mean, every word here had, contains power. He said, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me. How? Boiler empty. What shall it do? What shall it do? He said this. He said, my word. My word declares to my people. The world won't accept this, but you can. If you want it, you trust the Lord. And you do good. What's good? Whatever the Lord shows you. Good is not defined by who gets blessed as much as does it please God? Does it honor God? You trust the Lord and do good, and you will be fed. And God will take care of you because he said that he would. Folks, trust is a simple matter of placing your confidence in somebody 
that you have confidence in. Now, you won't do that to a stranger. You wouldn't trust a stranger, and I've told this story enough that he doesn't mind me telling it again. David, when he was a little boy, and put him on the kitchen counter, and I stepped back and said, David, jump, and I'll catch you. He'd never jumped before. He'd never been caught before. It was a new experience. But his mind was old enough as a little child to realize that if I did not catch him, well, you know, it was, that's a long way if you're little. And so he didn't want to jump off of there and maybe slip and fall and hurt himself. His only chance of that not happening is me catching him. Now, I told him I would, but he's never jumped before. How does he know I will? Well, he doesn't know that I will. He has to believe that I will, doesn't he? Trust is a product of believing. I mean, you can't trust God if you don't have faith in God. You can talk about faith and God all you want to and quote the Bible. You will never trust God until you are convinced that if he said it, he absolutely will do it. I know he will. And the only way you can prove that is by doing it. That's how you can tell. David jumped off the counter and I caught him. I didn't lie to him. I didn't tell him to to do something that I wouldn't do. I didn't ask him to do something that I couldn't do from my side. I knew I could catch him. But he learned something when he jumped off of that counter. He learned that he can trust me, at least to do that. Like most kids, once they do that, they want to do it again. Then you have to watch them because every time you walk by a counter, here they go, they jump, you know, and you've got to come off there because they, oh, he's around, he'll catch me. But trusting is when you have confidence in who you know. Again, you wouldn't trust a stranger. I'm sure some big steroidal something or another came in the kitchen and said, David, you jump, I'll kick you. And he might look at him and say, I want my mother. Because he might look at this stranger and say, I know you look like you could. You're an ugly hunk of man, but you do look like you could catch me. But I don't know if you will or not because I've never proven you. I've read about you. I know about you. We sing songs about you, but I've never, I've never trusted you. That's the way it is, folks, with a lot of people in the church. There's a kind of comfort zone that we have in singing nice songs around nice people in a comfortable setting like a church room. We enjoy that. I do, and so do you. We like to sing, Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his... That's what trust is, take him at his word. But I think a lot of people ought to sing that carefully because none of us in this room know that God will feed us and take care of us, supply all of our needs until we're willing to get out there where... He is. But that's the difference between us fretting and being anxious about what the world has and letting God bring us what he's promised us. In that verse again, he says, if you will trust in the Lord and you will do good, you will eat the good of the land. I like that. Or you will be fed and so forth. And I'll say it again so we can move on. Your faith and my faith, our faith in this room, people in this room, what you believe is manifested in whom you're trusting. If you say you're trusting God, there is only one way for anybody to know, and that's about what you do. It's an act, but it's what faith is. To have faith in God is to trust God. If my wife told me she's going to get up and fix me breakfast, then I'd get up and get hungry. I mean, I'm hungry getting up. Why? Because I'm fixing to eat. How do you know you're going to eat? Because she said she's going to fix breakfast. How do you know she will? Because I trust her. I'm not going to go in the kitchen and her go, <laughs> you don't get any breakfast. <laughs> you crazy. She wouldn't do that. But you see, you trust people you know. If your buddy tells you he'll come over and help you, then you know he'll come over and help you. Now, he could have an accident or something like that because we're human. But to trust in God, 
as I said, is to take him at his word. He cannot mislead us. He cannot fail us. He cannot lie to us. He cannot make a promise that is over his head. He cannot in any way deceive us or lead us astray because he's our God. What did he say in the 91st Psalm that he was? I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God, and him will I trust. How do you know he's all of that? Because the Bible says it. The Bible says a lot of things. How do you know any of this will work? You know, it's like jumping off the counter. Until you jump, you don't know. You enjoy the songs, enjoy the comfort of the testimonies and the smiles and the peaceful atmosphere. But the real world is when you and God relate and there's a need in your life and he says, trust me. Or you're looking around, oh, Lord, this doesn't seem to be fair. Look at all these people. They don't give and they don't go to church and they got. And the Lord says, tell you what, you trust me. You rely on me. Count on me. Depend on me. You'll be fed. You do good. And God will take care of your life. He will. Because he's God. He doesn't make a promise that he cannot keep. Do good. See, doing good is the way we walk. Trusting in the Lord and doing good, it's like God saying, in this way, I want you to follow me. By trusting me, counting on me, you don't know where you're going like Abraham didn't know, but he stepped out there and said, I'm going with you. And where you lead me, I will follow. And what's the other part say? What you feed me, I will swallow. Amen. Now, what's the second thing? Go back to Psalm 37 in verse 4. He said, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you what? Do you believe that? How about a Wednesday night crowd at Shelbyville Christian Assembly, Shelbyville, Kentucky? Do you believe that if you delight yourself in the Lord, that he will indeed give you the desire of your heart? Or is it just a song that we sing? Is it like trust? Do we hear it so much? Yeah, 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 yeah. But deep inside, we really don't expect that. Deep inside, I'm not really sure that'll happen. Even if he said it a number of times. Delight yourself in the Lord. The word delight, the Hebrew word, is sort of being soft and effeminate. But it goes on, and the conclusion that you'll reach with the word delight is finding pleasure in. Find your pleasure in God. There's other things that you can do. You may have hobbies, and you may enjoy fooling with that stuff. But so relate to God that you find your most pleasure, the most rewarding internal pleasure in him, that you find something very comfortable and very secure in him, something valuable to you. Delight yourself in the Lord. Don't just say, well, I'm going to come in here and pray. No, 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 no. Don't come in there dreading to pray or dreading to go to church or dreading to sing or dreading to have to sit through another, how long to preach, hour, an hour and eight minutes. Don't dread that. There's nothing about delight in any of that. That's not delight. And as I heard today, people that are not going to church anymore because they sat home and listened to sermon, they're not delighting in that either. That costs you nothing. I believe that things that cost you time or energy or something are things you're going to put yourself into a little bit more. You'll delight in it. We have to make preparation to come to church, don't we? Well, some people don't look like they do, but we do. Because we put something into it. Now, if I'm dreading all of this, I might find an excuse, a reason to stay home or do something else. But when I begin to see, again, this relationship you have with God and the entrance of the word through the years and the effect and the accumulation of the effect, you begin to see things more the way you should see it. 
For example, what's the difference between a sense-ruled man or a carnal man or a fleshly person and a spiritual person? What's the difference between somebody who is carnal or maybe, you know, what's that word in Psalm 1 that we use, fretting and anxious? What's the difference between somebody who is ruled by his senses and somebody who is ruled by the Spirit? Is there a difference? A sense-ruled man is hardly ever satisfied very long with anything, whether it's an affair they're having, a car they bought, a trip they made, or a plan they've got laid. They're not happy very long with anything. Rich people are like this. They know they can have what they want. They plan to go, have, do, buy, and accumulate, and they get all their toys, and they're never happy. Because God has made man in such a way that the world and all the accumulation of it cannot make you happy. You think you're happy, but you're not happy long. You get disappointed just as much as a broke or a poor man does. You complain just as loudly as professional athletes do. It is whining. I mean, the wealthy people do this. They are no different. And they've got everything. But a spiritual man, a spiritual man is a man who is ruled by his consent by the Holy Spirit. Maybe not 24 hours of every day. But there is enough evidence of it that here is a man who has been gaining and learning, and bits of information from the Holy Spirit about God are coming into his life. His eyes are being opened by the Spirit. He's getting revelation of things from God. He begins to see things he's never seen before, been in church all his life. But things begin to come into focus. He begins to see things. Now that verse that says that he should give him the desires of his heart, you know, Carnal people say, well, you thinking you just want everything. Uh, wait a minute. What I'm realizing is that the more mature and spiritual a man becomes, the less of all that junk he wants. Contentment is a far greater virtue to have than greed. To be able to enjoy what you've got. I think he said in this Psalm, verse 16, a little that a righteous man has is what? Better than the riches of many wicked. It does what it's supposed to do. You don't need more than what you've got. God gives you all you need. You may not have all there is, but what you've got is plenty. I mean, having bread and raiment therewith, what should we be? Content. Well, I only have two changes of clothes. Do you have enough? Yeah. Are they clean? Yes. Do they fit? Yes. Put your hands up in the air and say, praise the Lord. But I don't want 10 changes of clothes. You're going to wear them all at once? Huh? What are you going to do with them? Advertise, put on a show, fashion mart, you know. What are you going to do with them? You think that by 10 changes of clothes, you're a better person? You think that the new car makes you a more sophisticated human? You think you got more class now if you've got a little money in your pocket? You think you're a, more than you used to be? You complain as loudly as you ever have. You will be as stingy and as tight as you ever were. And no woman, no alcohol, no drugs, no new thing, nothing satisfies you very long. All those things leave the wicked in despair. But God says, the little that you have, if you only have a little, remember the song, remember some of you don't, little is much when God is in it. That's an old gospel song, a uh, gospel singing. But you take a man who is beginning to relate to God. He's no longer living for money. He no longer lets money control him. He knows what he needs.
He knows that God will supply these. How does he know that? Because he said he would. And how does he know if he said he would that he will? Because he decided to trust him. And God supplies his needs. He doesn't give him way too much. But he doesn't have to because having enough is sufficient. He's not carnal anymore. He's losing his greed. And the world says, well, you don't have much. He said, I have plenty. It doesn't take more. It does not take more than what I've got for me to be content. My house has an air conditioner in it. It'll heat itself in the wintertime. I've got a clean bed to sleep in. I don't know what else I could want. Give me three of those and I'm no better off. Give me five brand new cars and I am no better off. You might be with four of them, but I am no better off. Because I found, you know what's the most important thing to a Christian? I know this may be sermonizing or just, well, that's what you say in a sermon. But you know what the truth is? The more you relate to God and begin to see things his way and let his inspiration come into your life, the more it matures you in the way you look at the world. And you're no longer greedy. I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I could go. It's all gone. It fades away. That money you wish you had, when God gives you what you want and you're at peace with God and you enjoy serving the Lord, that's good. I don't need more. I don't need more than what I've got. And sometimes in this world of greed, you know, kids are going to college with this dream of getting, 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 and getting some more and having some more. And maybe I can get one of these and have my credit rating so high that I can have it all. And never stop to think how much of any of that is inspired of the Lord. How much? And if you're honest, you say, well, I don't think any of that was. I think that was no more than the lust of my heart, the lust of my flesh. Well, do you think it's right? Well, no. But, friend, you will always be like that until you turn to the Lord and take my life and let it be until you let God change you and give you a new way of thinking about things. You'll be ruled by the things of this world. So we said, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. What if I did desire a new car? Is that okay? Somebody else said, I don't want a new, I don't even need a new car. Fine, we're both happy. Well, I don't need a new home. I don't even need a nice house. Just, you know, something that knocks the wind off of me and keeps me warm. Then we're both happy. Well, what if we had to switch? We're still happy. God has given us richly. Paul wrote that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. He cut no corners. He even said, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. I don't want you down in the dumps fretting and complaining and grumbling. Ask the Lord, he'll give it to you. And probably when you see him for who he is, he'll ask you to give it away and you will. What if you had a brand new home and you gave it away? Could you do that? You might be able to. Verse 5. This will keep the dogs out of your yard to keep them from biting you. Commit your way into the Lord. Now, if you can't do that, don't do it. Commit your way into the Lord. You're going somewhere, aren't you? There's not a stagnant soul in this room tonight. Everybody has a plan to do something tomorrow, even if it's sleep in. Everybody has a plan. All God is saying is to keep the devil from ruling in your life or ruining your life or messing you up, commit your way to the Lord when you get up in the morning. I try to pray this as often as I think about it. I ask you to guide my steps today. Lead me in a right way before the right people to do the right thing. Expand, open my mind to see things, what you're saying, so that I can see it your way. I don't care what it is. Let me see what you're saying. I'm not afraid of what anybody thinks about that. If it's what I'm called to do and I say what you show me, I don't care what the world thinks. It doesn't even matter. Just show me, teach me thy way. And when he teaches you his way and he shows it to you, he says, commit. That's a personal act 
of your will. That's a personal response of your will to God, a decision to commit my way. The Hebrew means to roll your way over on the Lord. It's like taking a burden off of you and roll it over on the Lord. It goes back to trusting the Lord. I think in verse 5 or 6, he said, commit thy way unto the Lord and then do what? Trust also in him. And what will he do? He will bring to pass because he's leading you the right way. He'll bring it to pass. Are you going to heaven? Do you suppose God is leading you in that direction? Maybe, possibly, hopefully, perhaps, kind of, maybe, heaven. <laughs> you Maybe we're doing that. Well, the Bible said you commit yourself to that way, and what will he do? He'll bring it to pass, did he? He will. He'll bring it to pass. I praise God for that. Casting all your care upon him, didn't he tell us to do that? <laughs> Think of how many times you want to fret because of this or that. He said, hey, don't let this thing get you down. God is there before you with a word for you. He says, cast all your anxiety, all the things that vex people. Cast all your care over on him because he cares for you. If you intend on carrying your burden around and all that, you can, but you don't have to. He said he cares for you. Turn to Psalm 55 for just a second. Psalms 55, and look at verse 22, just a few pages to your right there. Psalm 55 and verse 22. This is a promise. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and what will he do? He will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. What a wonderful promise that is tucked away neatly in Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast thy burden that you're carrying with you right now tonight, that heaviness that you have. Cast it over on the Lord or roll it over on the Lord. Give it to him. And when you do... Like one translation says, cast it once and for all over on the Lord and let him have it. The way you demonstrate that you have is when you no longer worry about it, fret about it, talk about it. You start praising God for the results. You haven't seen them. But you're thanking God by faith that he's going to take care of it. It's going to be all right. Praise the Lord. Well, what if it's your job? That'll work for that. What if it's an illness or sickness? It'll work for that. Because at some point, we have to trust him, say, Lord, this disease, sickness, this job, money, this child of mine, this, that. He said, cast your care. Where? He said, cast your care over on the Lord, and what will happen? He'll take care of you. Now, I want you to notice that word commit and coupled with the word trust. The picture is the fact that you are counting on or trusting in somebody, maybe with your life. Let me put two verses of scripture together for you. Psalms 22 and verse 8 and Matthew 27 and verse 43. I want you to look at both of those. Psalms 22 and verse 8. This is a messianic psalm. I am told it is. And then Matthew chapter 20. 7 and verse 43. Now, in Psalms 22, it said, and this is spoken of Jesus, he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. What if the king Artaxerxes had said to Ezra, well, I don't need to send my army to help protect you and care for you. Your God, you said, will take care of you. And you say, oh, our Lord will do this. Well, so then let your Lord take care of you. Would that be okay? It would be true. There's nothing too hard for God. And oh, our God heals. Our God delivers. Our God, okay, then let him do that. And then Matthew 27 and verse 43, at the cross, at the cross, hanging there, they said this about Jesus. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. 
For he said, I am the son of God. Well, then let the Lord deliver him. I wonder how many of them would say, well, he must not be the son of God. Well, no, he didn't deliver him. Did, did you think God would let his son die on the cross? Would you let your son die like that on the cross? No. If you were a ruler and you had the power and that was your son and these wicked people were killing him, you'd kill the wicked people if, if you could. You wouldn't let that happen. That's nonsense to let your son die like that. Well, he said he tried. Well, then let God bring him down off of there. I tell you what, if he does and he's the son of God, if he comes off the cross, fine, we'll follow him. That sounds modern. That sounds like Google stuff. That sounds like the way people are talking today. They're talking like that now. They're reasoning amongst themselves like that in this modern age of deception. More than at any time in my three quarters of a century, I never heard, ever heard people talk like that as much as I have the last 10 years. Reasonable. They're reasoning like that. Well, that couldn't be God. I mean, that wouldn't be. Oh, what's the sense of that? Why would he let somebody die like that? Well, then let God get him off the cross. See, here's that word again. Because he delighted in him. Uh, who do we delight in? How many times will the world say that to us? I had a dog one time that was hit by a car. This dog was a good dog. There's a few of them left. This one wouldn't bite you. He would just like to be pet all the time. And his name was Duke. I wasn't home when he got hit. I got a phone call. So I said, they took him down to the vet. And the veterinarian knew me and had heard of me. And they got the name. He said, whose dog is this? And he said, is that the preacher or something like that? He said, yeah. I said, we'll take him back. He believes God. Let God fix him or something like that. At first, I thought, uh, how can I do this very nice? You, <clears throat> thou sorry soul. My first impression was, boy, you know, I don't even, I've never met you. And then I got to think, wait a minute, isn't that a good testimony? Well, he believes in God, you know, his, all his faith stuff. You know, well, it'll, let his God heal that dog. Old Duke made it. He came back. He came roaring back. For a while. I wonder if they'll ever say that about us. Well, you said God will take care of you. What if a hospital turns you away? What if a doctor's office, she came in and said, do you go to Shelbyville Christian Assembly? Yeah, well, we're not going to treat you. Your God will take care of you. <laughs> Would that be a compliment or a put down? What if you went in the drugstore with your scribble and you hand it to the man and he said, what church you go to? Shelbyville Christian Assembly? No. I'm not selling you anything. Would that be a compliment to you? Well, I'll let you go in just a minute. You can think about it when you get outside. What if people begin to identify you and know that you're supposed to believe certain things and they therefore kind of mock you and ridicule you by saying, well, let your God take care of you. Well, let your God. You know, I think there's something in me that say, fine, we'll do that. Because he's bigger than you are. He's bigger than everything. And he will take care of me. And you'll see in the end that he did it well. Amen. Because he is God. Look, verse 7. He said, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Is that what he said? Go back to Psalm 37. He said, rest in the Lord and wait patiently him. I like that. Because resting is something that means, the Hebrew word means to be still. To be quiet. Take time in all your reflections and your meditations and your spiritual pondering. Take time sometimes just to be still. To relax. Be still. You've been going at this day as wide open, and you've been doing this, and you've been doing that. Close your mouth for, for a moment. Quit complaining. Quit yakking. Quit talking fear. Quit talking concern. I don't know what I'm going to do, but 
Everybody knows that. Just be still. Instead of talking, I want you to listen. Isn't there a verse of Scripture that says, Be still and know that I am God? Is it possible that in the stillness of your time, God can speak to you and you listen? Sometimes he said, Rest in the Lord. Just be still. Just be quiet. Whether you're laying in your bed or sitting in a room or an office, maybe in your car, a quiet place, wherever it is that you like to sit, just wait for him. Just wait. Be patient. Quit being anxious. This is God's remedy for fretting and being anxious. This is part of it. Shh. Quit looking around at all the stuff you see and wishing and hoping. Shh. Be still. Just relax and let God have his way. What did he say in verse 8? Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Cease from anger and forsake wrath and fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. To make a wrong decision. Come on, you've been hearing the word for years. Most all of you all's life, you've been here. You've heard a lot. I don't know what you believe. Any of us. I know what I believe. But sometimes things are going to ball up on you. The world's going to wad up on you. And you don't know what to do. And there's times you need to realize, look, God's in control of a wad. God's in control of this wickedness in this world. The devil's called the prince of the power of the air. But God is supreme over all the earth, over all that is. He has a whole thing. The earth is the Lord's and what? The fullness thereof. He's in control. He's leaving us in a wicked world with, surrounded with wicked people. I forget how many times the word wicked is used in Psalm 37, describing evil people. Many times a reference is made to the wicked, and we're told, don't concern yourself with those people. Don't aspire to be like them. Don't even wish you could have what they have because what they've got has corrupted them. Be content with what you've got. Enjoy the Lord. Take time to listen to what God is saying. This is the beginning of a time in our lives. We're coming to the end. This is a beginning in which light is going to begin to shine. He's going to give you hope and peace about your tomorrows. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to sit out and cry and bawl. I don't know what to do. You do know what to do. We started with that tonight. Trust in the Lord and do good. You know to do that. He said, trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way into the Lord. Rest in the Lord. This is his remedy for the things that are destroying people's lives. These simple things. Now, as a preacher, as a pastor, it is so easy to mention these things and to teach on them. But it's frustrating when you don't see it working. It's frustrating when people, after so many years, still haven't made contact with this. It's just kind of like ink on paper, not on your heart. That... We still get ourselves in a wad. We still make bad decisions. We still do the wrong and dumb things and say, oh, I can't believe I did. You shouldn't do that after 30 years. 20 years, 10 years later, you shouldn't be making decisions like that, should you? Who do you think's behind the inspiration to make bad decisions? Wouldn't you think the devil is? I mean, how many times have we been taught that? And yet, phone call, and I think, how do you do that? How do you do How do you get yourself $20,000 in debt to a credit card? How do you do that? How do you sit in a place where that's taught how to come out of that, how to avoid that, and sit right there, listen to it, and do it anyway? How do you do it? There's something wrong in a man's connection with God. He's got it mentally down pat. He's got his understanding about where it is and what it says. But when it operates in his heart, it just seems like it's not time for that. Or I can't handle that. Or I'm not ready for all of that. 
And so the dogs keep biting. We keep fretting. At some point, we fret to somebody. I tell you, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, well, everything. Just yakety, yakety, yak. When's the last time you talked to somebody you knew was kind of going through a hard time and all they did was smile? Praise the Lord. I just, not very long ago, was thinking of somebody. I won't go all of this. Somebody try to figure out who it is. You know they're going through some things. You know they're not doing that well. You know they are. Difficulty. They call you on the phone because they have a need, and I told them, you have a need? Call me. I'm willing to help you. And on the phone, they talk about how good God is, how able he is. Hey, they edify me. It just happens sometimes I have a need. Well, we often meet each other's needs, don't we? Or a person who's in another difficult situation, you couldn't even possibly approach this person without them smiling at you or talking about the Lord. Now, what's the difference between those people and people that are well and able, who are just down in the dumps, fretting, talking to their friends, well, I wish I had that. I don't know what went wrong with that. What's wrong? How many of you know there is something wrong? I want to go one more verse. I want you to go with me to verse 6. Verse 6. These things that I've just mentioned are God's right ways for us. By right ways, I'm talking about the word righteous and righteousness. It's used in this psalm many times. Let me read what verse 6 says. He says, and he shall bring forth... That is, you trust, you delight, you commit, and you rest, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment or justice as the noonday. Now, how big a deal is your righteousness in all of this? Just follow me. I'll tell you where the verse is. You go to it. Verse 16. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of Many wicked. He bring your righteous, so you'll be like that. Verse 18 and 19. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, that would be the righteous, and their inheritance shall be for a while. For, excuse me, forever, thank you. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. Verse 21. The wicked borroweth and payeth not Again, but the righteous shows mercy and giveth. That's the verse you write in a book you loan to somebody. You... <laughs> verse 25. I have been young and have been old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. It ain't going to come to that. Look at verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. You like that? Verse 32. The wicked watcheth the righteous. Boy, they do too. And seeketh to slay him. Here's what verse 33 says. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Verse 37. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. 39, but the salvation of the righteous is because he tried hard. The salvation of the righteous is because he, he said under Brother Hamilton. Huh. The salvation of the righteous is because he was gifted. Well, I'm missing something. Let me read that verse. Oh, for the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. Let me ask you all something. This is one of my favorite themes. If I wind up saved, I mean, heaven's there and I made it and well done, come in. How did I get there? Did I get there because I'm clever? I had a role to play for sure. You know how I got there? The Lord brought me there. The Lord did it because he said salvation 
is of the Lord, the salvation of the righteous of the Lord. And in time of trouble, what is he to us? He's our strength. I assume that means we won't fall apart when the going gets tough. I assume that means we won't give up and quit because the days ahead get a little dark. Or unfairness becomes more prevalent in society. And more and more people are beginning to get fearful and afraid. You know, this is a fearful age. Have you ever known an age more savage, more violent than this one is? I mean, this is an age in which nobody has any respect. Nobody. Not many people have any respect for human lives. Just like over in Iraq. Those people are savages. Those that ISIS group? Muslims and the terrorists, they should read Psalm 83. I tell you what, save that one. Read that tomorrow. Psalm 83, it was written for Muslims. Is this thing on? It was written to the Muslim community, Psalms 83, and their agenda in the world. I'll let you have that, and then I'm going to say this, and I'll turn you loose. Psalm 37 describes how we live and how we move. And how we have our being and exist in this world. Psalm 37 is God's description of what pleases him and what causes things to work well for us. When things work well for us, the world wants to know how it is that you're escaping all the terrible things and how you're surviving. And why are you smiling? And the Bible said we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us a reason. Envy? Wanting what you got, covetousness, I don't need it. I have what I need. God's given me all I need. I even have an extra pair of shoes. Or three. <laughs> Is there nothing I lack? Are you with me? I tell my kids sometimes, like when a birthday or something comes up, I said, do not buy me anything. Don't have some kind of a brother Hamilton and buy him anything because he'd have two of them. I mean that with my heart. You know, don't need a money tree. Don't need any kind of thing. I'm not a rich, wealthy person. I just don't need all that stuff. Why? I can stand here tonight and tell you all this. It doesn't take much anymore. It doesn't take much. I love my wife. My wife loves me. We like each other. I love this church. I like this church. I love you. I like you. There's nowhere on this earth that I could not, at least tonight, afford to go to. Nowhere on the whole earth if I wanted to go. But I don't care anything about going. Boy, if I could go, I'd go to Hawaii. Been there three, four times. I don't care a thing about going there. Only way I'd go there is if I could take my whole family and rent an airplane and take the whole herd. And watch them all splash in the water. What a waste of time. I mean, I'd do it. <laughs> a beach, sand. <laughs> but anyway, I am at peace. God has supplied all my needs. You say, yeah, but you're too old to enjoy life any, anymore. Uh-uh. Watch out. Might surprise you. Might not. God is good, isn't he? Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are gracious. And you are kind and most of all, you're loving. You care about us. Your compassions for us, they fail not. We are more blessed. We may not know it. Your people may not even realize it, Lord, but we are more blessed than anybody on the face of this earth. We have more to look forward to. We have more that we can tap into, more that is accessible to us than anybody. Lord, teach us how to enjoy you first, to enjoy your benefits, and to rejoice in the days to come when your church becomes mature without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. And as a unit, we will be able to love you much the way you have loved us. 
I ask you to bless these people that are here tonight, the ones that should be here. I ask you to bless them all. Give us a a mental game, Lord, that's hungry for the word. Give us a will to seek you out. And give us a desire to live this life. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.